begin with prayer here. <laughs> Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for another great day, a beautiful day that you've created. And we thank you for your mercy and your faithfulness. We know that your mercies are new every morning. And even though we have sinned against you because of what Christ has done, we have the forgiveness of sins and we have the hope of eternal life. And I ask, Heavenly Father, as we look at these things concerning the unleashing of the beast upon the unregenerate world, that you would give us comfort knowing that we've been spared from these things. But I also ask, Lord, that you would use your words uh, through your scriptures to also preserve your remnant during this time period. And we thank you that all of your promises will come about and that you're faithful to protect your elect. We thank you for these things in your name. Amen. Now, as you can see, we're in Revelation chapter 13. Now, remember in Revelation chapter 12 that we just came out of, we had seen a grand overview of Satan's warfare against God's seed. And we define God's seed as both Israel and the Messiah. So in Revelation chapter 12, at the very end, we saw that God was going to be faithful to preserve Israel even in the last three and a half years, the great tribulation known as the time of Jacob's distress, as it's talked about in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Well, now... As we come to chapter 13, we're seeing the beast unleashed. Remember, we left off in the beginning of chapter 13 in verse 1a, where the beast was standing on the sands of the seashore. And it's from this sea, which is an image, we'll talk about that metaphor, that the beast, the Antichrist, arises. And so that's where we pick it up here in Revelation 13, 1b. John continued to write this. He said, then I saw the beast, or excuse me, a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads, his heads were blasphemous names. Now, one of the things I think we have to wrestle with right away in this text is this beast, Therion, which is a ravenous beast, is coming up out of the sea. And one of the questions that that should raise in our minds is, is this a literal sea? Or is it symbolic? What is the issue with the beast coming up out of the sea? Well, here I think we have clear symbolism because so many passages in the Old Testament refer to the sea in an ominous way, in a way that really reflects the abyss. So the sea represents in the Old Testament the place of chaos, the place of the abyss, the place of the satanic realm that tries to confront and usurp God's purposes. And I want to show you some evidence of that through a few passages. Let's begin in Isaiah 27.1. Turn your Bibles there, if you will, to Isaiah 27.1. And as you turn there, I want you to remember that as we look at Isaiah 27, that comes on the heels of obviously Isaiah 26, which is really all about the last days, about the return of the kingdom to God rather than Satan, and the preservation of God's people. And so in Isaiah 27, 1, it begins, it says, in that day. Now that day is, of course, the day of the Lord. The, can, it's really synonymous, I think, with the 70th week of Daniel. It says, in that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives where? lives in the sea. Now, the dragon there, I think, is a clear reference to Satan, that in that day, God will overcome Satan once and for all. 
And so here, where does the dragon come from? Well, he comes out of the sea. So think about even the back of the beginning of Genesis, you see, no pun intended, the sea has to be overcome by God. The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, and there's the symbol of chaos, but yet God overcomes it, and he brings about his creation. And so in a sense, the sea to the Jewish mind represents the place of the satanic realm. It's not a place of safety. It's not a place of peace or a place of fishing. For them, it's primarily the place that represents the abyss. And we see many, many other passages that refer to that. Now, who has the microphone? Uh, Brian, could you read Luke 8, 28 through 30? In fact, you might have to read further than that. I Maybe go to verse 33. But um, everyone turn your Bibles, if you will. I want to show you a New Testament reference that shows us that the sea really does represent the place of the abyss. Again, Luke 8, 28 through, I think, probably around verse 33, somewhere in there. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him. And oh, set stop right there. I'm sorry. Let me set the stage. Um, Brian's going to be reading from the scene where the Gerasene demoniac is healed. It, he, that is, he's set free from the demonic realm. So the demons are going to be cast out, and you'll see they're going to be thrown into the sea. So I'm sorry, continue. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break, he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Yeah, and so keep reading. Okay. I'm sorry, keep going until they end up drowned. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. So notice the reference to the abyss and the reference to where do the demons go? Well, they go into the swine unclean, and then they're thrown into where? The sea, the place that represents the abyss. In a sense, they go back to their source. That's the image that we see there in Luke chapter 8. Now, when we look at this idea of the sea representing the abyss, we're also given a hint back in Revelation itself that, in fact, the sea represents the abyss. Yeah, Bob. Furthermore, in that context, yeah. in Luke 8, there's a series of things in that chapter showing everything that people really feared. Jesus and, overcomes. And were powerless over yeah. or against Jesus' defeats. Because before the gathering, there was calming the sea. Exactly. Master, we perish, calms the sea. Then there is this guy who's totally healed and sent back in the Gentile territory. He wants to follow Jesus to testify about the mighty deeds of God. And then after that, Jesus raises the dead. Yeah, death. So you've got these things that the Jews understood to be ominous, horrible, fearful, demonic, and Jesus has power over all of them. Now, Luke's point is there's not, nothing so bad 
that we can't come to Christ for salvation. Well said. He can deliver anybody, no matter how bad their situation. It's never hopeless. Yeah, thanks, Bob. And I'm glad you brought up the fact that Jesus treads down the waves of the sea. That's a reference back. As Jesus walks on the sea, remember he does that as well. That is a reference back to Job. And the question that Job asked rhetorically is, who is this that can tread down the waves of the sea? Well, who has control of the sea? That's the idea. Well, it's Yahweh. Okay, so if Jesus can calm the sea and can walk on the sea, who is he? He's Yahweh, right? Now, I want to just do a little politics with you, but politics is tied to morality and it's tied to our worldview. Who back in 2008 promised that if you elected him, the sea would recede? Remember that? Well, I was aghast because if you can claim control of the sea, you're claiming to have the same ability as Yahweh himself. The same individual when asked just a few months ago, what is to you sin or what is an evil deed? I think the question was sin. And he says, well, that's when I don't live up to my own values. So then this individual that I'm referring to, Barack Obama, is also his own source of morality. So he claims that he can calm the waves of the sea. He is his own source of morality. That sounds a lot like Yahweh. Is not Yahweh the righteous standard of the universe? And so that's what Marxism is. Marxism is where government is God. They are God. And that's what Babylon is going to be led by. Babylon will be built by a group of people who claim to be God. Obama said, we are the ones we've been waiting for. At the Tower of Babel, didn't they say, let's make a name for ourselves? Well, sure they did. So when we think about the sea, who alone has control of the sea, the abyss, and as Bob pointed out, all the things, death, life, etc., it's Yahweh. But there's going to be one, this beast, who is ultimately the culmination of all of that, what mankind tries to do to usurp God and try to wrestle control from Yahweh. Now there's another passage I want to turn you to. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 11:7. I want you to see here in Revelation 11 that we're not left wondering as to where this beast comes from. So you're, you're going to see this is really synonymous with him coming out of the sea. Revelation eleven seven. it says, When they have finished their testimony, remember those are the two witnesses, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. So notice here in Revelation 13, he comes up out of the sea, but in Revelation eleven seven, he comes up out of the abyss. The sea really does represent the abyss. We're given clear, uh, I think, clear indication then of that. Now, the other thing I want to point out is that the sea also represents the nations because the nations are, in a sense, controlled by the demonic realm. That's part of our Deuteronomy 32 worldview, that there's only one nation that belongs to Yahweh, that was Israel, and all of the other nations, according to Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 through 10, were given over to what? the sons of God, this angelic realm. Now, I want you to see evidence of that. Turn your Bibles to Daniel 7, verse 3. Again, Daniel 7, 3. I want you to see that this image of nations coming up out of the sea shows that they have as their source the abyss. Daniel 7, 3. Here's the vision that Daniel was having of this four successive kingdoms that would come about. It began with Babylon, then it was the Medo-Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. Then you'd have a revived Roman Empire. And he says in Daniel 7, 3, 
there were four great beasts. So again, those beasts are kingdoms. There are, you could just say four great kingdoms where they were coming up from the sea, different from one another. So what's the point of the nations coming up out of the sea? Well, Satan uses the nations. The demonic realm uses the nations. Doesn't Psalm 2 say, why are the nations in an uproar? And why have they devised a vain thing? They've taken their stand against Yahweh and is anointed. You see, Satan is using the nations to try to usurp God's authority. And so that's why you can say, well, both the nations come from the abyss and you also have Satan who comes from the abyss. It's really the same source, but it all comes from Satan trying to usurp God's authority. Yeah, Brian. And forget that the stoichia is in charge of those, is above those nations. Amen. Exactly. Yeah, and the stoichia would be synonymous with the divine council, specifically the demonic side, I believe. Yeah, yeah, well said. Um, more evidence of that was in Daniel 10. Remember, you had, uh, what's that angel? Gabriel wanted to come to Daniel, and he says he was prevented by the prince of Persia. Well, who is this prince of Persia? It wasn't a physical prince. It was a spiritual prince. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 6, our battle's not with flesh and blood, but with powers, principalities, etc. Yep. Well said. Okay, now, so this beast is coming up out of the sea, which represents the abyss. Satan is his source. But notice he also has ten horns and seven heads. Now, what is that all about, this beast that John is seeing? Well, right away... When we see the beast having these seven heads and ten horns, I think John is designing that. And, and I guess, again, he's seeing this, I think, literally. He's inspired by the Spirit. But it's designed to show us this affinity with the dragon. So there's a relationship between the beast and the dragon. Now, the reason I say that is turn your Bibles, again, to Revelation 12:3, And you're going to see that there's a depiction of the dragon, Satan, that's very similar to the depiction here of the beast. Again, Revelation 12, 3. If everyone's turned to that. Revelation 12, 3, it says, Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having what? Seven heads and ten horns. And on his heads were seven diadems. So stop there. You see that the description of Satan and the beast are very similar. But remember back in Revelation 12, the accent would have been on the heads. That's the focus. Why the heads represent successive kingdoms that came about in history that Satan used with the attempts of trying to usurp God. But the focus here in Revelation 13 is going to be on the ten horns. Because the ten horns are the horns that have a kingdom, there are ten kings or kingdoms, that reign with Antichrist in the final days, that is within Daniel's 70th week. And so that's the accent here. But notice you cl clearly see an affinity between the dragon and between the beast. Now, notice also that the horns here, keras, I want you to understand that they're used in association with kings or kingdoms. And I want to show you evidence of that from the Old Testament. Daniel 7 7 through 24. I have it on the screen there. Daniel, again, this is a vision that he saw of these four kingdoms that came about. He says, After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, that had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder of its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had what? It had ten horns. 
as for the ten horns, he said, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. So stop there. We know the ten horns are then the ten kingdoms that are going to be lined up with the Antichrist. It says, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. Now, notice here, we have a reference to the ten horns, and then after them arises another one. Well, that's the Antichrist. Now, the ten horns that we see in Revelation 7, that's synonymous with the ten toes that we saw in the statue in Revelation chapter 2. And again, these are the ten kings that are going to be aligned with Antichrist sometime in the 70th week. Okay, does that all make sense? Anybody got any thoughts, comments, questions? Now, when it says another one will rise after them, that's clearly a reference to Antichrist. Now, how do we know that? Well, turn your Bibles to Daniel 7.25. I want to continue the thought from verse 24. Turn your Bibles to Daniel 7.25. Who is this one that will arise after them, who will subdue three of those ten kings? Well, it's the Antichrist, because in Daniel 7.25, it says he will speak out against the Most High. Now, stop there. In just a moment, I'm going to show you that in Revelation 13, you're going to see that he does speak blasphemies. Now, the ultimate blasphemy that the Antichrist will perform is, as Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, he sets himself up in the temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Okay? So, again, let's just go back to our political day. When people claim to do the things that only God can do, it's not a very good sign, is it? Okay? The ultimate beast will claim to be God and he will set himself up in the temple of God. So now, Daniel 7, 25, he will speak out against the Most High. He will wear down the saints. That's warfare against believers. The saints are the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in time and in law. And they, the saints, will be given over to his hand for time, times, and half a time. There's three and a half years. Now, I'm going to show you a summary here of Daniel's visions and his kingdoms, because I want you to understand that Daniel keeps depicting four kingdoms that come about. And what John does is he actually expands on that. He just begins and adds more kingdoms to it. So, for example, in Daniel 2, do you remember who had the vision initially that Daniel had to help out with and to interpret? It was Nebuchadnezzar, exactly. And so Nebuchadnezzar said to his Chaldeans, his uh, men that were working for him, he asked them, can anyone interpret this dream? And the only way he would accept their interpretation is if they could first tell him what the dream was. Okay, so no one could do that except Daniel. Why? Because Daniel is a prophet of God. God is the one who reveals mysteries. And it's God's apostles and prophets then that reveal mysteries. If someone attempts to tell you a mystery, it's either something that God has revealed in Scripture and therefore it's no longer a mystery, it's revealed. Or they're trying to claim that they're a prophet or they're getting the information in a secret way through divination. Are you with me? So that's why we should be very leery about people who claim to reveal mysteries. That's why I had a big problem with Jonathan Kahn's book, The Harbinger. What did it claim? It claimed to reveal the mystery of America's future. Well, if it's a mystery, again, let's go through the grid. The only way you can reveal a mystery is if it's given by God to an apostle or prophet or it's through divination, or it's revealed in Scripture. Well, it wasn't revealed in Scripture, and I'm quite sure that he's not a prophet or apostle. We don't have those today. And so the only other source would be through divination. Now, I don't think Jonathan Kahn, by the way, was divining it. 
there, I guess there'd be a fourth option. You're just making it up. <laughs> That's the fourth option. He's just making it up. Now, what are we supposed to do with people who claim to be prophets who are just making stuff up? We're not to listen to them, right? We're to judge them by their fruit. But Daniel was a true prophet. And so in this prophecy, he sees and is able to interpret what Nebuchadnezzar saw. So in this statue, there was a head of gold, which represented Babylon. And he tells us this. Daniel doesn't leave us hanging as to what the interpretation means. You had a breast and arms of silver. That was a reference to the Medo-Persian Empire. Belly and thighs of bronze. That was Greece. And then there was legs, feet, and toes of iron and clay. Now, what's interesting about the fourth image in the statue is notice there's a blending from the legs to the feet. And that shows that there's going to be an offshoot of this last kingdom. It's going to go from Rome to a revised Rome or an offshoot kingdom that will come. And those ten toes end up being synonymous with the ten kings that reign with Antichrist. And what's very interesting is you're going to see a very similar image and order of kingdoms in Daniel 7. So let me show you that one. Daniel 7, Daniel himself had a vision of four beasts that came up from where? The sea, exactly, which represents the abyss. Again, they're trying to usurp God. Here you have... This beast that Daniel saw looked like a lion with eagle's wings, represented Babylon. And he tells you the interpretation, so you're not left wondering. The bear represented the Medo-Persian kingdom. The leopard represented Greece. And then you had a dreadful final kingdom. And again, there was a blending. It had iron and teeth, and it also had ten horns. And those ten horns, again, are synonymous with those kings that will reign with the Antichrist, synonymous with the ten toes earlier in Daniel 2. So do you see how through Daniel, in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, he keeps showing you those four great kingdoms that are going to come about? Now, as we just saw, yeah, Bob. Just quickly. Yeah. I remember in the 80s, there were VHS tapes people had, and somebody gave me one, and certain Bible teachers were trying to prove that uh, nations that signed up for the European Union were the ten kings. Oh, sure. And therefore, all of this prophecy was happening right. in the 1980s right. in Europe. Yeah. Okay, and then, well, the, we know pretty soon there's more nations, and yeah. now one of them got out. Isn't there a, doesn't all this happen during Daniel's 70th week? That's exactly right. That's what I think. Well, so then why should we be... We don't have to guess. Why should we be making videotapes, making <laughs> claims about things we can't know? Exactly. Well, it's the same way with this con. I wrote an article about his latest book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, claiming that the U.S. stock market was going to crash, you know, massively yeah. in October of 2015. Yeah. Which did not happen. I think we are so full of pride and self-centeredness that we think America is the center of the universe. Yeah, right, right. Okay? And that whatever the Bible says must be talking about America. Right. And now, why would we think that? Yeah. Because I heard from Christians that read CIC who live in South Africa. Yeah. And they were telling me, that Christians in South Africa believe that South Africa has a covenant with God oh. <laughs> because 
there was this time when the uh, people that were coming to colonize yeah. South Africa were being attacked by natives. Yeah. And so they made a covenant said, God, if you if we can win this battle, we're going to make this, dedicate this country to you. Yeah. And so they killed all of these natives. And then now they have some day they celebrate. I got this from a, a reader from South Africa. Oh, South Africa is God's covenant nation on the earth. <laughs> you think God would have told us about that covenant? Well, <laughs> so the Americans are saying, oh, America is God's covenant nation. Right. South Africans, no, it's us over here. Yeah. And um, the fact is, these things haven't happened yet. Exactly. All That's right. right. Don't waste your money. Don't buy the video. Don't buy the books. Don't sell your stocks, if you have any, based on some guy claiming to be the prophet of God. Exactly. America is not capable of obligating God to a covenant that God never agreed to. Amen. All right? Nor is South Africa. Yeah, and Bob. Nor do we know that God is pleased when thousands or thousands and thousands of people that are living in South Africa are wiped out. Right. (laughs) How do we know God is happy with that? Exactly. See, we need to get our theology straight. Now, Eric and I believe that there will be literal fulfilled prophecy during Daniel's 70th week. We also believe that the rapture happens first. Okay? So whoever made that VHS tape in the 80s trying to prove that the European Union were these ten kings in Daniel and Revelation, they make all of this money selling the tape and pretty soon there's way more nations than that. And do they give all the money back? Or do they go around America and say, oh, we were wrong, we were wrong, we were wrong. (laughs) No. They come up with some other scheme and sell that to the Christians. And the bad thing, by the way, I'm trying to loosen my voice up. You're good. good. Somebody suggested it worked better that way. Yeah. Um, see, dear saints, what happens is all Bible prophecy gets a bad name. Exactly. So imagine if you read this cons book, yeah. sold all of your stocks, liquidated your IRA, or worse yet, bought long, figuring it's going to crash and you're going to buy stuff <laughs> right. or whatever and you lose all your money, do you think he's going to get your money back? Exactly. So what we do know is even so come quickly, Lord Jesus, Amen. these things will literally happen during Daniel's 70th week. Exactly. And that's, I think, the key issue, Bob. A lot of commentators have misunderstood the Olivet Discourse, and a lot of evangelicals had. Matthew 24 and Mark 13 are, that's the all of a discourse. It's about the 70th week of Daniel. And here's our interpretive choices. When it talks about signs within Matthew 24 and Mark 13, we can either say that these signs occur within the church age. Now, what Bob was just talking about is people who are claiming that the 10 kings back in the 1980s were part of this confederacy that was affiliated with the UN. They misunderstood the Olivet Discourse as to referring to signs that are occurring here during the church age. But that's why we spend so much time. Remember we did Mark 13 
the Olivet Discourse, this is back when we were back in the thick auditorium, we spent copious amounts of time proving exegetically through evidence, grammar, tons of grammar, syntax, that no, these signs don't occur within the church age, but exclusively within the 70th week of Daniel. Now, why is that important? Because how can you have it? The, the rapture is an imminent event. Well, if you have to have some sign that occurs prior to the rapture, it's no longer imminent. When Jesus says it comes like a thief, how many think that the thief gives you a precursor? Uh, my famous joke was, if you knew when a thief was coming, you would have your shotgun out, you'd be eating your tuna fish sandwich, and you'd have 911 in the speed dial. You'd be all set for him. And as soon as you see the car show up, you'd say, oh, there's the thief. The problem with thieves is they don't let you know when they're coming. That's the issue. And so all the signs are within the 70th week. So as we're reading today about these 10 kings, they're going to come about in the 70th week of Daniel. It's not something that occurs within the church age. Now, why do I call it the church age? Because in the 70th week of Daniel, the church has been raptured. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't believers who you know, become believers during this time period. There are. Okay, in fact, we'll talk about that later. Yeah, David. Uh, well, now I feel kind of foolish because I read that book, The Harbinger. Oh, sure. That's all right. Huh? That, that's all right. You know what? It's, we can always be corrected and to learn, right? Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> That's the key. I had a, David, I had a captain when I first, I was an airline pilot years ago at Masaba Airlines. The first day I had to fly, this new captain told me, he says, Eric, he says, just relax. There's nothing that you will do that I haven't done three times as bad and three times as often. And, uh, and that's, I love that attitude to say, look, we're here to learn. And uh, that's the thing is, it's one thing to be wrong. It's another thing to stay wrong. And we can all learn. And yeah, amen. Yeah, Levon, go ahead. I always thought that um, Revelations was talking about the European Union. Sure. I always thought, too. And eventually that they would get down to ten nations. Sure. And, and I know the Reformers strongly believe that the Roman Catholic Church, the popes, they would be the, probably be an antichrist. So, but no. you're, I think Bob said... We don't need to worry about this because the rapture is going to take us first. So yeah. Why what, what, does what God we're saying talk is, about yeah. it? Why, why are we told about it in Revelations? I don't understand that. Yeah, why are we ta- told about it? And I'll, in fact, I'll show you later why when we keep going here. But the big issue is there's going to be people who come to faith in Jesus during the 70th week, and they're going to need to know this. But you and I know this. And the application to you and I now is that we know that God is faithful to his promises, that all the things that were referred to back in Daniel, he's going to bring about. Now, with reference to the 10 kings and whether or not they're a part of this European Union, the point is they very well could be in the future. The point is we don't have to worry about it. Um, unless the text specifically tells us, if it said it was part of a European Union, all we know is that there's going to be 10 kings. The reason I'm showing you, by the way, that we have Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome it's because Daniel told us that. So I'm not just reading into the text. I'm just telling you what Daniel, Daniel interpreted those. So when we say, okay, we have 10 kings and they're for sure part of the European Union, what I'm saying is I don't have data within the text to tell you that. Now, providentially, God very, very well could use the European Union, 
uh, the UN, et cetera, for his purposes, and more than likely will, at, you know, to a certain degree. But how much, I just can't tell you because there's no scripture that says these are the European Union or anything like that. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What does Rome plus our Rome? I just use our religious Rome. Um, I use that for revised oh, or revised. yeah, okay. yeah, a revised Roman Empire. And there's different ways. It's, it's an offshoot of Rome that the Antichrist will end up inhabiting. Yeah, because remember the legs blend into the feet, into the toes, and those ten toes are an offshoot of the Roman Empire. Um, we're not explicitly told, so I just use our Rome for that, revised Roman Empire. Yep. But you could come up with it. It'd be the, you could also put the kingdom of the Antichrist if you wanted. It would be the a synonymous kingdom. Yep. Okay. So anyway, the, if, by the way, if all of you are confused or any of you are confused about why these signs should be seen within the 70th week of Daniel rather than during the church age, we have our messages online. You can look up the Olivet Discourse, and we get into very specific exegetical detail about how that should be interpreted in Mark 13. So if you went on our website and looked at Mark 13, the Olivet Discourse, the interpretation of it, it'll lay it all out for you. Okay. Now, what I want you to see here is I want you to see the connection between these four kingdoms and the beasts that John sees. These seven heads are seven kings or kingdoms. And the first kingdom that would have been those who oppressed the Jews would have been that of Egypt. Then it was Assyria, the Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then you had Rome. Now, let me just point to the screen, if I may, my pointer here. Notice in Daniel's visions, yeah, there it is. He saw Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Okay, well, in Revelation, he just takes a broader swath. He just begins with Egypt and adds Assyria. Then, of course, you're going to have the re what I call the revised Roman Empire. That's going to be the empire of the Antichrist. Okay, so those are the seven heads. So this beast that comes out of the sea is, in some sense, a compilation of all that humanity has done to try to usurp God. What did God, what, let me say it this way, what did Satan do with Egypt? Well, Satan tried to use Egypt to wipe out Israel, didn't he? Didn't Egypt attack God's firstborn? God says, Israel is my firstborn son. So what was the ultimate plague that God used to redeem his firstborn, Israel, who has the inheritance rights? He struck down Egypt's firstborn. There was a reversal. So remember out of Hosea 11.1, 1, it says, Out of Egypt I called my son. The, the prophet Hosea is saying God did something. He protected his seed from the Egyptians. So the Egyptians were the first to try to crush the people of God as a nation. Well, then you had the Assyrians. Didn't they wipe out the ten northern tribes in 722? And they would have wiped out the Davidic promise. They would have wiped up all of Judah. They would have destroyed all of Jerusalem, and all of God's promises would have been wiped out. But what happened? Remember that during the reign of Hezekiah? You read about in the book of Isaiah and the book of 2 Kings, you read that he prayed, didn't he? And what happened to Sennacherib, the king of Assyria? In one night, he lost 185,000 men, and he turned tail and had to run. That's miraculous. So God spared the Davidic promises, the people of Judah, from Assyrian destruction. Well, then God sent his people to Babylon, 
and the Babylonians are going to try to wipe out the people of Israel, but it only lasts 70 years and God brings the people of Israel back into their land. Why? Because the Medo-Persians came onto the scene. And in a sense, the Persians were used by God to bring Israel back. In fact, God says in Isaiah in chapters, I think, around 45, that he would use Cyrus, the Medo-Persian king, like a pseudo-anointed one. He doesn't say pseudo, he just uses anointed one, a Christos, an anointed one, a favored one who would bring the Israelites back. And so God used Persia to bring them out. Well, then the Greeks tried to wipe them out. Remember Antiochus Epiphanes IV is an offshoot of the Greek Empire. Of, under the Seleucids. They try to wipe out. Then the Romans come. They try to wipe out, in a sense, Jerusalem in 70 AD. So these are all the nations that have tried to wipe out what God is doing. And there's going to be an offshoot kingdom, the revised Roman Empire, that this Antichrist will reign from. Well, now, in our description of the beast that we're reading about here in Revelation 13, the seven heads also had what? It had ten horns. And so these ten horns are ten kings that are going to reign with Antichrist at the end. Now, how do we know that? Well, turn your Bibles to Revelation 17. I'll give you a sneak preview. Revelation 17, verses 12 through 13. By the way, my graphics aren't that good, I realize. It kind of looks like a perverted turkey here on the screen. But uh, you can kind of get the idea of what John is depicting here. These ten horns. Make sure I got all ten of them up. Yep. Revelation 17, 12 through 13, it says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not received a kingdom. Notice they have not received one yet. But they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. Right there. Stop. That should show us that the ten kings, the ten horns, aren't during the church age, but they're linked to a short period of time with the coming of the Antichrist. Notice it's for one hour. That's a short period of time. It says they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. Verse 13, it says these have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. And so those ten horns are going to be ten kings and kingdoms that line up with the Antichrist in the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, now, I'm going to show you later, we're going to revise this diagram because Revelation 17 actually revises it a little bit. But this is the picture that John is seeing of the beast, the beast that comes up out of the sea, it's a conglomeration of all that Satan has done through the nations. And the ten horns represent the ten nations that will reign with the Antichrist at the end. Now, I'm going to talk about this composite nature of the beast now here in Revelation 13, too. Notice John continues. He says, And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like that of a mouth of a lion like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Now, dear ones, notice here the reference to the leopard, the bear, and the lion. Does everyone see the likes here that I have in the box? Clearly, these are similes, hosts in the Greek. Now, what this tips us off is that these animals, the leopard, the bear, and the lion, aren't to be taken literally, but they are symbolic. It's a simile. Now, what this is bringing us back to, again, is the book of Daniel. What John is depicting is that the beast is a conglomeration, a composite of all of the nations that have come before. So think of it. Through history, all these nations are trying to usurp God's authority. Why? Because Satan is energizing them. 
Okay, Satan keeps energizing the nations to try to crush God's promises. And one day the beast comes and he is a composite of all that the nations have tried to do to God's people. And who's energizing him? Satan. So that's why he's being depicted this way. So, for example, turn your Bibles to Daniel 7, 4 through 6. You'll see the same imagery alluded to, the lion, the bear, and the leopard. Again, turn your Bibles to Daniel 7, verses 4 through 6. Daniel was describing the beasts, these kingdoms that he saw. He says, the first was like a lion. This is Daniel 7, 4. It had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made, us, made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its feet, or excuse me, between its teeth, and thus it was said to eat, arise, devour, eat much meat. Verse 6, after this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. So as Daniel goes through his description later in Daniel 7, you see that these beasts that he describes, the leopard, the bear, and the lion, are three different kingdoms. And it's from that kingdom then that the Romans come. And from the Roman Empire, there's going to be one day the Antichrist. So when it comes to the leopard, that represented Greece. The leopard, of course, has insatiable bloodlust. We know that the bear, the Medo-Persian kingdom, uh, John, or excuse me, Daniel just tells us in his, in his prophecy what the bear represents. It's the Medo-Persian kingdom. A bear, of course, represents brute force. The lion represented the Babylonian kingdom, which, of course, would be very fearful. The Babylonians, by the way, the Assyrians, these were bad people. Uh, when they went to war, they were not good to their captives. In fact, the Assyrians, uh, Bob, you know about what the Assyrians did. Why don't you tell everybody how bad the Assyrians were to those that they captured? Brutality. Oh, well, yeah, I remember you had mentioned it one time. The Assyrians, when they would capture, some, some historians say that they would actually take spikes and drive it through their, their lips, and they would just pull them in trail. So the Assyrians were brutal people. They were the Nazis of their time, okay? So when these nations come about and they're fighting against Israel, think about how evil was Adolf Hitler to the Jewish people. Well, these were the Adolf Hitlers of their day. Okay, so why is that important? Because Satan is using the nations. Remember Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 10. All the nations were given over to the the sons of God, the demonic realm. But there's one nation that belonged to Yahweh, that's Israel. So what's Satan trying to do? He's trying to wipe out Israel so that all the nations are just his. Okay, so that's why Daniel's focusing on these things. That's why John is focusing on these things. You and I have to have a biblical worldview that understands that history is going somewhere, that God has a promise to bring about a kingdom in a land called Israel. That's going to be the headquarters. And throughout history, the nations are trying to usurp it. Again, Psalm 2, why are the nations in an uproar? Why are they devising a vain thing? Why is it a vain thing? Because no one can overcome Yahweh. See, the rest of the world, they go about their daily lives and they have no idea why they're here. They have no idea what history is going to. They have no idea what history is about. History is his story. That's what it's about. But they have no reference to put any data within. So you and I have to have a biblical worldview that understands history 
is a battle ultimately between God and Satan, and God is prevailing, and God will ultimately prevail. Now, the, the other thing I want to show you here is notice at the, the end of verse 2 in Revelation 13, it says, the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Satan is giving his authority to the beast. Remember, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Satan is known as the God, small g, obviously, of this age. Okay, he is the God of this age. In a sense, the true God, Yahweh, has allowed Satan to rule and to reign in a domain that he has given him. And so, the, in fact, turn your Bibles. Let me just read the passage, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. This is what Paul says. He's talking about how Satan blinds people to the gospel. He says, in whose case the God of this world, literally it's this age, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the God of this age, Satan, gives his authority to the beast, and the beast is going to become the one that the world worships rather than Christ. That's why he's the Antichrist. So what Satan is developing then is really what? A false trinity. You have Satan as a false father. You have the beast as the false son. And then you have the false Holy Spirit as the false prophet. That's what Satan is trying to do. So we see that there's even going to be a counterfeit resurrection. Revelation 13, verses 3 through 4. John says, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? Now, focus on what I have highlighted in red. Notice John sees one of these heads. Now, remember the heads in the beast image that I showed you on the previous slide, or previous two, the second to the last slide? That image, I showed you that the heads represent not only kings but kingdoms. Well, the beast also represents a kingdom. And so that's why you can say one of the heads was slain. But the question we have to wrestle with is in red, it says, it's as if it had been slain. And so some conjecture and say this isn't actually a fatal wound that he receives. It's a pseudo wound. So the debate before us is the Antichrist, this beast, does he actually receive a fatal wound or does it just seem to be a fatal wound? Well, I think it's the former. I actually do think it's a real fatal wound. Now, why do I say that? Because of how John uses host as when he refers to the slain lamb. Let me show you why. Remember Revelation 5, 6. This is in the throne room. Notice John's description of Jesus. He says, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, when it says the lamb as if he was slain, do we say, well, Jesus wasn't really slain? Well, no, he actually was slain, wasn't he? So John uses that image to show us something that's actually real. So as we apply that to Revelation 13, I don't think John is saying, well, it's a pseudo-death, a fake death, not a real one that comes upon the beast. I think it's a real death. I think he's really put to death. Okay. In fact, notice where it says his fatal wound was healed. There's two terms that are put together here. They're both nouns. One functions like an adjective. The term for wound is actually the term for, uh, it's, a, it's a term that means a wound or injury 
but the term for fatal is literally death, thanatu. So literally, you could render this very literally in the Greek. Instead of saying it's a fatal wound, it's a death wound. Okay, that's how I would say it. Plague thanatu. Thanatu is death. Uh, uh, it's a term that you want to keep in your mind, thanatas. Okay, it means death. So it's a death wound. So this isn't, I think, just a pseudo-death or a fake death, a pretend death. I don't know how else to say it. It's a real one. He really does die. Okay, so that's why it's so striking when he comes back alive. And that's why it goes on to say, and the whole world was amazed, or the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Why? Because it was a real resurrection. Okay, now, God is the one who obviously grants the power and authority for that. But I think this is really true in a fake resurrection. Yeah, Levon. Absolutely, and we'll talk about that in the next slide. What I'm going to show is that God gives power for his specific purposes to Satan and allows the beast to do these things. So none of these things can occur without his sovereign control. And there's a specific text in Revelation 17, 14 that shows that he's doing all of this for his purposes. In fact, I'll I'll come to it in a couple of slides. Okay, so we'll read that. But one thing I want you to think about is this false Christ then is doing something that the true Christ did. There's a false resurrection. And what's very interesting is turn your Bibles back to John 5. I want you to see an ominous warning that Jesus himself gave to the Jews as he was lecturing them about, hey, the word, if you believe the scriptures, the scriptures teach about me, and yet they wouldn't receive the scriptures, and therefore they wouldn't receive the true Christ. Again, turn your Bibles to John 5.43. John 5.43 Jesus says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Now, it's a very ominous warning that I think finds ultimate fulfillment here in Revelation 13. In fact, what's very interesting is the term for other, alas, is another of the same kind. So there's two terms for other, or I'm sorry, for another. In Greek, there's alos, and there's also heteros. Now, how many of know what heterosexual means? You have people of different sexes, right? Male, female. So that would mean the same of a different kind, okay, or another of a different kind, right? Well, that's not the term that's being used here. The term that's being used here for another is alos, which means another of the same kind. And the image, I think, is... Jesus talking about someone who claims to actually be him, who claims to do the things that Christ does. It's going to be very winsome to the unregenerate world who don't know anything about biblical theology. They don't know anything about scriptures. They're going to receive this one who comes in his name. Yeah, Brian. When you go back to Moses, he had the staff, and he would turn into a serpent. And the magicians were replicating that. Exactly. And you can follow that type of a scenario throughout the Bible yeah. where uh, it should be no surprise that this verse is referring to an actual death because signs and wonders, all these other things, uh, is replicated by Satan as the anti-Christ. Yeah, amen. Well said. Yep. Very, yeah, and that's a great analogy. And remember what happens with Moses has the staff, turns into the snake and the magicians did the same thing but then moses staff the snake ends up eating theirs <laughs> i love that showing that no yahweh is ultimately in control so 
Yeah, exactly, as the bigger snake. So yeah, he, everything comes from him. He's ultimately in control of all of this, all right? Now, all of this then, the world is going to focus on giving their allegiance to the beast, this false Christ. Notice why they cry out for him. They say, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war against him? So here's the irony. The unregenerate world is a world that always cries out for peace, right? In fact, doesn't Paul say that the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night while they're saying peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them? So here the world that claims to want peace. Do you notice the peace symbol, by the way, is a broken cross? They want peace, but they ultimately give their allegiance to the prince of war. And they reject, as it says in Isaiah 9, 6, Jesus, who is the prince of peace. So they reject the Messiah, these people who want peace, the prince of peace, and they get the one who is the prince of war. Who is able to make war against him? That's ultimately what the world wants, is a supreme warrior. And so this whole peace movement is a ruse. I scoff at it. It's a false morality. The same people who will butcher the unborn by the thousands are apoplectic if you put a murderer in the gas chamber. One of my favorite uh, talk show hosts is a man named Dennis Prager. He's a Jewish fellow. He's not a Christian. I'm not claiming that he has biblical theology. He does not. But I love the man as far as his worldview. He was debating a man one time on the radio. He has a talk show. And this man called him up and he says, you know, you love the death penalty so much. Could you pull the lever and actually put a murderer to death? And uh, this is where I got my tuna fish sandwich uh, line. Dennis Prager said, I could do it while eating a tuna fish sandwich. (laughs) Why? Because what does it say in Genesis 9, 6? If a man sheds a man's blood, so by man shall his blood be shed. In Romans 13, Paul doubles down on that. He says, the government does not bear the sword in vain. So my point in saying all this, brothers and sisters, is when you look at the peace movement today that say, peace, peace, you know what? They're going to give their allegiance to the one who they say, who can make war against the beast? No, they want a warrior. And this pseudo-warrior, this Antichrist, he's going to be destroyed by whom? The ultimate warrior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is going to consign him to the lake of fire. Yes, Mike. I just wonder, I, I think you probably have this information, or someone in this room does on the top of their head, the history of the peace symbol, because it's so popular. So many people just love the peace symbol, but I know Russ, Russell Bertrand was involved yes. at some point in yeah. time, but it really is the broken cross and, and, and trying to complete this is just trying to get rid of religion, right? If we didn't have religion in the world, we would, uh, we would, we would have much more peace. Isn't that part of the peace symbol? And it's like, like John Lennon's Imagine if there was no religion. Exactly. You know. That's right. Uh, so My understanding, but, and um, you, you might have some thoughts on this, um, Tom. Going on for a long time. But I, I think you're right, Mike Bertrand, Russell. My understanding was there was... Um, Aldous Huxley, Julian Huxley, all yeah. those guys, everything that they wanted to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Aldous Huxley, uh, you know, uh, Julian Huxley, all those guys were really involved in being able to, they wanted peace. And, yeah. and even today, you know, you look at Saul Alinsky, their, their method of doing it is to create division. Yeah. And you see so much uh, uh, division. Yeah. And, you know, with the Christians and the Jewish people and different types of things like yeah. that, that's a, that's a strategy. Exactly. And their strategy right now is... It's kind of like, let's get all this stuff going on, and we'll be the ones that will be able to 
create the peace. Right. And right. so it's a strategy for power, and yeah. that's exactly what's going on right now. Yeah. Well said. Can I? Yeah, Val. Do you know off the top of your head? I know the Bible talks about the killing of innocents. Yeah. And I always think about that with abortion. Yeah, absolutely. You know which Bible verse that I, is? I'd have to look it up okay. in a, in, with a specific term for innocence. But, um, you know, I think about an example of that. Remember in um, Exodus 1, you have Pharaoh who commands the Hebrew midwives to murder the unborn as they're coming out. And the Hebrew midwives, in fact, their names, uh, I forget their names, but they're actually recorded. Two women, they lie. They say, ah, the Hebrew yeah. women pump these women out, so, or these babies out so fast, we don't have time to kill them. So remember, we're to obey our governing authorities, right? We're commanded by Paul. And here, these women are debating the governing authorities. Why? Because it was an evil command. And so I think that clearly shows that, yes, murdering the unborn is evil. So you see that all the way back in Exodus 1. Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, and Bertrand Russell, Mike, I know he was involved with the anti-nuke movement. And so the, the anti-nuclear movement had the peace symbol as their symbol. It was the no-nuke symbol. And so that morphed into the symbol that becomes the symbol, really, of the anti-war uh, movement in Vietnam, etc. But it is a broken cross, and there's so much irony dripping from it because, to them, it's this Judeo-Christian ethic that leads to warfare, you know. And, uh, of course, you and I know differently that, no, the Prince of Peace, when he comes on the scene, there really will be peace, and the swords will be beating the plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks. But, yeah, Bob. I was just looking at some material that I've done over the years because some guys are coming into town yeah. to shoot a video. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out what I'm talking about because mm -hmm. this is from 10 years ago. So I'm getting myself back to speed. One of the things that I was talking about back then was that the sort of world we live in now goes back to what God did after the Tower of Babel. Mm -hmm. Okay? Exactly. And God is the one who scattered the nations, yeah. who draws out the boundaries. And Deuteronomy 32, I believe in the original, because I think the Masoretic text doctored it. Exactly. Said, according to the sons of God. Right, that's exactly right. Okay, and so that's where you get this Prince of Persia. And so yeah, right. This is how God has chosen to rule over the world until. Yeah. Okay. So the until is going to happen at Daniel's 70th week. Exactly. Okay. So once this uh, changes, this is when Antichrist rises to power. Right. And the world is going to get what they wanted, and they've wanted it for centuries, yeah. the millennia. And instead of heaven on earth, they're going to get hell on earth. Exactly. But they want it. And so if you listen now to the politicians, what are they trying to tell us? We are the world. Yeah. Let's erase all the boundaries, and everybody comes and goes. There are no more borders, borders yeah. and boundaries. Right. It's babble. When you hear that, here's what you need to know. They are rebelling against how God has chosen to rule over the world ever since the Tower of Babel. Yes. Yes, exactly. and they want to go yeah. back to Babel. Yeah. They want it. They're still mad. They got frustrated Babel. Amen. There's 
computer program you can get that'll translate languages, and the name of the program is Babel with two B's. Have you seen that? Wow, no. B-A-B-B-E-L. And we're going to get rid of all these boundaries. Someday it'll happen. But you know what? We don't have to vote for it. Yeah, exactly. Amen. (laughs) Well said, Bob. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you know, let's leave on this note. Um, Notice the question, who is like the beast? That's a question that's normally asked, who is like Yahweh? Remember when God brings his people out and you have the Song of Moses, Exodus 15? In the Song of Moses, one of the lines, and I think it's 1511, Moses says, who is like Yahweh? And so here, all of a sudden, you have this usurper, and they're worshiping him. Uh, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm 3511. Psalm 3511. The psalmist says, all my bones will say, Yahweh, who is like you, who delivers the afflicted from him who is too strong for him, and the afflicted and the needy from him who robs? Who is like Yahweh? You see the same idea in Isaiah 46, 5. You see it in Exodus 15, 11. You see it all over the scriptures. Who is like Yahweh? But here, this usurper is being given that worship. Who is like the beast? And that, as a reader of scripture, as a believer, should stick in our craw. And we want to see a resolution to that. And when we get to Revelation 19 and into 20, we're going to see the resolution. Because the, Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, comes back. And he's going to destroy the Antichrist and his armies. And he's going to set up his kingdom. And then in that day, people will say, who is like Yahweh? Who is like the king? Right? So dear brothers and sisters, know that there's going to be a favorable ending to all of this. But for a time, God is going to give the world what they wanted. Just as Bob said, the world wants to go back to Babel. And under the Antichrist, the false prophet and the false prophet, you're going to have that very thing. Okay, but let's bow our heads in prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you've shown us these things in advance, that we would know that you're faithful to your promises. And we thank you for the profundity of Scripture, Lord, that demonstrates that this is your word and that you're a God who does not lie. And we thank you, Lord, that you will overcome the beast and the whole world will give you allegiance and honor and glory. We also thank you, Lord, that you're a God who will beat the swords into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks and that peace will come through your son the prince of peace we thank you for all of these things in jesus name amen